Bam 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 Welcome back, everybody, to Go Help Yourself, a comedy self-help podcast to make life, life suck less. Um, I'm Lisa Linky. I'm Misty Stinnett. And you know the deal. This is your weekly full frontal episode where we rate, <laughs> review, critique, and talk about um, a self-help book, a popular self-help book of our choosing. Yeah, and we give you the broad overview I almost said the strokes. We give you the strokes. Because <laughs> we can't get into the nooks and crannies. Yeah, and we try to give some critical perspective, tell you what we loved about it, what we thought could be improved, mm-hmm. so that y- if you love what you're hearing, go buy the book. Yeah. Support the author. And if you don't, you're welcome. You're so welcome. We're here for you. Yeah, but you can still gain that life-changing uh, Pers- perspective altering advice and craving self help. People stuff. have just been beating you over the head with, and you're still not getting it. Yeah. So keep listening. Why aren't, why aren't you getting it? That's basically <laughs> our big message. Um, but today is a special episode. Today is maybe the most special episode. I feel like we've we arrived. Had. I feel like we have <laughs> arrived. It is happening. We First have, of all, we're in a different studio space, we should mention. Sav is out of town. Mm-hmm. He is music directing yeah. uh, a musical that he wrote yeah. on Nantucket. Yeah, and I asked him if there were any limericks on it, and he said no. Oh no, that is a missed opportunity. A real <laughs> missed opportunity. So he's <laughs> so we're here at the Network Studios mm-hmm. in Culver City, California. I almost said Florida. Culver City, Florida. Um, yep. And yeah. this is a real high-tech setup because we're actually videoing, uh, video interfacing. Listen, I again, I almost said in our hot little hands, also wrong. <laughs> but I do have it in my hot little hands. Uh, well, well we on, both do. on the video screen in front of us is a real live author. We Everybody. have not kidnapped her. We have asked her. She actually reached out to us. There was only mild coercion involved. We're really excited <laughs> we're so about excited. it. May we please introduce Gemma Hartley. Yay! Yay, Gemma, welcome. I'm, I'm going to give you a proper introduction. Yes. Gemma Hartley is a freelance journalist whose book, Fed Up, Emotional Labor, Women, and the Way Forward, was published in fall of 2018. She lives in Reno, Nevada with her husband and three kids who are four, six, and eight. You can find her on Facebook at Gemma Hartley Author or on Instagram at Gemma L. Hartley, and that's G-E-M-M-A-L-H-A-R-T-L-E-Y. And if that name is sounding familiar, it friends, it should. Gemma wrote my favorite news article of all time. The viral Harper's Bazaar article from 2017 mm-hmm. titled Women, Women Aren't Nags Were Just Fed Up. Gemma, welcome. Yay, thank you for being here. Yay. And I know you said you didn't kidnap me, but I am uh, trapped in this closet here. <laughs> Gemma, Gemma's in her closet. She's yes. in her yoga clothes. That was by Lisa's not choice. wearing pants. I'm not. So, so welcome aboard, everybody. <laughs> um, and just so, just as a quick recap, our episode 31, you covered that article. Yeah. We had a lot of conversation about it. Yeah. And just so you know, Gemma, I, my, in my previous life as a college student, that sounds like I used to spend <laughs> a lot of time decades ago. Um, my degree was in sociology. So I had actually studied emotional labor from Arlie Hochschild. And then we did a follow up episode. Yeah. And I was like, there is, there used to be this divide between the term emotional labor and mental load. And now they're kind of becoming one and the same. And I would love it if we could start off, if you could define emotional labor for, I don't know, the two or three people who didn't listen to that episode. Right. <laughs> And well, haven't read your book. And, and by the way, your article has gone uh, over a million shares, right? Yeah, I'm pretty sure. I haven't checked on it recently. I used to do that really obsessively, which is probably why it's like a million shares. <laughs> like like 900,000 shares are just oh, you refreshing. BT Dubs, I wrote it's this me. article. <laughs> I, I so relate to that. <laughs> what? How do you define emotional labor? So I define emotional labor as the invisible mental and emotional work that usually women are doing to keep everything running smoothly and keep everyone comfortable and happy. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Oh, I've already got the fire in my belly. I know. I My stomach got tight when you said that. <laughs> and welcome to Go Help Yourself. And also, congrats on writing a book. Is this your first book? It is my first book. I was really excited to, you know, have it out in the world and... 
you know, have it in my hands. That's cool. so amazing. And, and I mean, it's gorgeous. It's gorgeous. We, um, as always, the link to Gemma's book, if you want to buy it, will be in show notes right below the episode. You can click right on it. Mm-hmm. Um, it is this beautiful, clean looking, it's a white background with in big, bold red letters, fed up, up. Uh, emotional Period. labor women in the way for <laughs> Um, yeah, we had conversations about that period. Yeah. It needed to be like it's it's not a question. It's not no. like a it's not there's no there's not an opportunity for you to continue to talk about it. <laughs> right. no. Did you think about putting twelve exclamation marks at the end? <laughs> because <laughs> yes, for some reason they did not want that on the cover, and I was like, fine, put a period there. Fine. Yes, you tell them. <laughs> You just dictate. So the first thing that uh, stood out to me about your book, which Lisa and I talk about extensively Mm -hmm. and many of the self-help books, is that you don't come at this topic as a, I've got it all figured out. Mm -hmm. I was there where you are down below, and now here (laughs) I am up high on the mountain, and like, just do as I say, and your life will be perfect. Like, I loved how throughout the book you talk about your continued struggle yeah. with finding emotion that emotional labor balance in your marriage and your relationships yeah. and how even after the the article had come out um you know and you were you had the deal to write the book and you're actively writing the book you're still struggling to explain to your husband yeah. and to others yeah so lisa and i are so curious because we have read a lot of books that come from sort of a holier than thou place, we're so curious, was there any um, pressure from the publishers or anybody in that sphere to not be so open and transparent about it? Or was that a conversation that happened at all? Or, you know, was it a consideration in your mind? So it was interesting. There was a push right at the beginning when I was, you know, heading in to write it where it was like, okay, people are going to want like the takeaways and the things that are going to really help them. And I'm like, well, I'm not really there yet. We'll see how the book goes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, you know, the, the book really follows my own personal journey and it doesn't end in a place where I'm like, it's all good and it's all figured out. Cause we're still, you know, we're still talking about it. Yeah. We're still figuring it out. It's, I think it's a lifelong conversation that you're going to be having with a partner Yeah, Uh, because, you know, the balancing is really difficult. So, yeah, I don't know how like self-help my book is. I think it's really good for self-awareness and Mm. for, you know, starting to figure some stuff out. But it definitely is not like the book that gives those clear takeaways that I think my publisher might have been hoping for. Well, that's so interesting. I think that a lot of people in the self-help genre are really craving those. And um, we've definitely seen that. And, you know, even to the point where a lot of newer self-help books kind of bullet list them out. You know, I'm thinking about like Rachel Hollis's. They'll have like the end of the chapter. You can do. Mm -hmm. So uh, how would you describe this book? Is it self-help? Is it memoir? Is it a call to action? Is it kind of like a primer on emotional labor, you know, as it stands in 2018, 2019? Like, how would you describe this book? I mean, I know your publisher is like, say self-help because that's how we're marketing it. <laughs> but I think you bring up a good point. It isn't kind of like, here's how I achieved an egalitarian relationship and here's how you can do it too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I don't think it's that kind of book. When I set out to write the book and when I was in those like final stages of getting it put together, I was trying to think of what it was. Like, I'm like, what, what is this book supposed to do? And I think my biggest hope for it is that it starts the conversation Mm -hmm. about emotional labor because there has not been a comprehensive book on it yet. You know, there there is Arlie Hawk's child's work, which is very narrowly about, you know, emotional labor in the workforce. Yeah. Yes. And the term has really grown over the past few years. Um, since around like 2015, there was mm-hmm. a big like meta filter uh, thing on it. And it it's really expanded to include the mental load and that emotion work that we're doing in, you know, in our lives and our personal lives. So I think that it's a conversation starter. And that's what I want it to be. I want it to be a little bit of cultural critique, a little bit of conversation starter. And I hope 
that other people will pick up the torch and write more about it. Maybe, you know, get those self-help books yeah, out there. I I love that. You know, well, that I, I don't think I'm that person. Well, that's exactly what I was thinking. So Lisa, since you, um, you know, n- casually name dropped your college degree. Yeah, I have um, a, a major in sociology, Great. a minor in psychology and a concentration in economics. Thank so you. anyway, um, <laughs> I will uh, name drop my minor. I minored in women's studies and I would have completely majored in it, but my college did not offer a major in it. Why? And what, it's not important. That's right. That's exactly right. <laughs> um, moving on. Uh, and what I noticed is that, you know, first of all, and this ties into what I'm about to say, I am so happy to be looking you in the face right now to say thank you because mm-hmm. I did not have the vocabulary for this yeah. before. And I think that's why it lit the internet on fire yeah. because every woman was like, I've not, I mean, most women who read, read the article were like, I have been feeling this for years yeah. and I have not had the words to express it. Yeah. And I think it's so powerful to start that conversation just like Betty Friedan did in The Feminine Mystique. Mm-hmm. And it's okay to not have all the answers and the takeaways because if you look at any, you know, wave of feminism or big new, um, Uh, ways of expressing things that have not been that we haven't been able to before Mm -hmm. it does build off of each other just like you what i love also is that you reference a lot of authors who came before you Mm -hmm. talking about these concepts and you know building off of the work that they'd already done with um emotional labor and the mental load so we're going to talk a little bit more about your your process uh Mm -hmm. with this book because we are this is sort of our first window into yes uh, what is it that like brain to bring, and bring a book happening. into the world? Um, and then we'll dive into, you know, some of the meat of the book. So Lisa and I were chatting earlier today and we were so curious how how much of this in this process got edited? Like was your original, is is a lot of your original vision still in there? And we're also curious who did the editing? Yeah. Who's at the top and who who is sort of... <laughs> You know, working alongside you to have this conversation about women and the mental load and the way forward in emotional labor. Is it men? Is it women? What does that look like? So uh, how that happened was my my agent is a man and my editor is a woman. And so I, you know, I had a little bit of both perspectives in there. Um, but the one I worked closely with was my editor, Libby Edelson at Harper One. Um, she's not my editor there anymore. She's moved on to freelance editing now. Mm-hmm. But um, I, when I was going into this process, the way that it works is that I had calls with like 20 editors <laughs> and had to like kind of keep track of them. And then the book went to auction and I had my fingers crossed that she would be my editor because I knew like, as soon as we had that phone call that she got my vision for it, she would be the person that would bring that voice together. And so I was a little bit shocked at the process. She really left me alone. Like while I wrote Mm. that book, she left me pretty much completely alone unless I came to her with a question or said, I can't work my way through this. And we'd talk it out, and then she'd leave me alone again. And wow. then she edited uh, the whole book in one batch once I had completely finished oh it. Oh, my gosh. She sounds amazing. She sounds like a machine. <laughs> yeah. And then, you know, and then I went and edited the whole book in, like, one, you know, solid week. I locked myself in a hotel room and <laughs> edited the whole book. And then that was it. There was very little back and forth after that point. And she really, you know, in that editing round, she just brought it to the next level. And it was exactly the book that I wanted, you know, exactly the vision that I had from the beginning, but just elevated a little. So it was a great great. process. Oh my God. That sounds like a dream. Do you, do you read self-help? Are you a fan of self-help? Oh my God. Yes. Okay. Okay. So like, what are some of your favorites or what are you reading now? Um, So what I just read was Deep Work by Cal Newport. 
Yes, okay. I've read Deep Work. I'm so excited yeah. to read his other books so good they can't ignore you. Is that about massage? Deep work. <laughs> Deep work. No, Lisa, it's it's it sounds a lot like what Gemma did, locking herself into a hotel okay. room and doing okay. like really deep-focused work. Like, yeah, it was exactly that. I When I read Deep Work this week, I was like, that's the feeling I had when I was mm-hmm. like in a Las Vegas hotel room and couldn't go anywhere because I was so far <laughs> off the trip that I just like had to work. And I did that like... I did that very purposefully because I I was in this hotel room. My husband was on a business trip, which was perfect because yeah. he was out of the hotel room for 10 hours a day mm-hmm. and he would leave in the morning and then I would be like, oh, let me straighten the remote and make the bed before anyone comes. And then I'm like, well, I can't do anything else. I have to work. <laughs> yes. I actually know uh, uh, an old boss of mine, Stephen Falk, who is the showrunner of You're the Worst on FXX. I love that show. Uh, um, he will fly to Vegas, take a special trip because he hates Vegas. So whenever he has a script due, he goes because he knows he does not want to go outside for any reason sure, sure, sure. at all and just locks himself in hotel rooms until he gets it done. That's so So smart. it's a thing. Yeah. Like a Las Vegas yeah. hotel room is a thing. That's nice. <laughs> yeah. No, it's great because it's too hot to go outside. You're not going to do, yeah. you know, especially yeah. like during the summer, I was like, it's too hot to be outside. The yeah. pool would be like a bath. I'm not yeah. doing that. Yeah. So it was just like, okay. I'm going to minimally rearrange the room because if I was at home, I'd be like, you know what? My closet needs like, oh, the, oh, the, the floorboards right need repainting. I have cleaned my vacuum before I've hit a deadline. That's exactly like, right. The room was not going to clean itself. I, it was no, so stupid. To be not. fair. Okay, yeah, that's great. So you, you just finished <laughs> deep work. Do you have like um, an all-time favorite self-help? Oh, that would be hard off the top of my head. Sure, sure. sure. Yeah, sure. If it comes to you, let us know. Lisa asked me the yeah. other day, like, what's your favorite book we've covered so far? And I was like, this one, this one, this one, maybe this one. And I can't. <laughs> it's fine. Um, so, okay. So let's dive in yes. to some of the meat of the book. So you already shared with us the definition of emotional labor. And I think the key here that really resonated with me is that it's invisible. This is why it's so hard to talk about because people don't see the 15 (sighs) mental steps it took to get to the physical labor of making something happen. And our partners are so often willing to do physical labor, but that's not the exhausting part necessarily, right? I just really want to commend you on um, all the different all the different ways that you help name it and kind of put a face around it mm-hmm. with with what you mentioned you didn't have words for before or what people feel. Um, and it just, I, I talked to a friend, I asked a friend, I sent her this book and I said, um, I, we're talking to uh, Gemma on this night. Can you send me a question? And I'll tell you her question a little bit, but she, the day that I sent it, she texted me and said, I've just been screaming yes out loud to nobody in my, in my apartment, and I'm only like three pages in. <laughs> so it's really fantastic. Yeah, Lisa had to put down the book at one point for a few days because she I'm got so mad. mad. Not at you, but Not the world. Not at you, but at the example. So, so two of the things that I love about your book so much, and I was texting Lisa this like love letter it's very intersectional. Oh, God, yes. You use examples um, from women of color, women of different abilities. Trans, you know, the commu- trans yeah, community. Yeah, the trans community, which is so wonderful, and it is such an important part of the conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, what I found really helpful about that is that I think we all kind of innately understand that somebody in— um, um, a, a, what is the, it starts with M. Marginalized. Thank you. I wanted to say mitigated and I was like, that's not it. In a marginalized group already has extra stuff to deal with. But the way yeah. that you just kind of clarified it around how um, people in the disabled community, the extra emotional labor that they have to do, even with people in their own intimate circle, mm-hmm. right? Or with just their if friends. Just a friend invites them to a concert. It just really kind of helps l- not level the playing field, but for somebody who isn't in that community or doesn't or, or walks with a privilege, um, it kind of helps you reset like, yeah. oh, yeah, people are doing all this invisible work that I don't see. Yeah. And your your book is so comprehensive. We love STEM here. Yeah. And there's 
I mean, there's so many examples, so many authors cited studies, statistics. So we really, really loved that about your book. Yeah. Um, so something that I wanted to share is a, a something you write on page 42. Um, and it's about how how men use emotional labor sort of as a means to an end. So, oh, so you write, this is when I put <laughs> down the book. Thank you. So you write, whether consciously or not, men tend to perform emotional labor as a means to an end, whereas women perform emotional labor as a way of being. That's how we get from a happy and equitable relationship at the onset to the simmering resentment that appears years later. Um, and then you use all of these incredible rom-com examples yeah. of how like literally a man just doing emotional labor for like a moment to get the girl is like or, or our biggest fantasy. Yeah. All these, prom- yeah. I've, it made me think of like this huge um, promposals, you know, that happen now that like, I don't know. I think when I went to prom, my boyfriend was like, you want to go? You know, and now it's like a whole <laughs> thing that's like, there's rose petals spelled out in prom tattooed mm-hmm. on my back. You know, like it's, it's this huge thing. It's this huge emotional labor um, thought-filled event as a means to an end. As a means yeah, to I an mean, end. Yeah, I mean, at least the promposals are happening. I mean, the you want to go kind of sucks. <laughs> With, no joke, my first school dance, I like. I asked my boyfriend, I'm like, are you going to ask me to the dance? Yeah, and he right. was like, no. So I went with someone else and I was like, screw you. Yeah. Well, and you make such an interesting point too that, I mean, it is it is mostly nurture and that we start this stuff, this gendered emotional labor very early on in like our middle school friendships and our relationships, you know, it is that starting of, I need to make you happy. I need to make you happy. Well, here's, here's where I'm going to jump in and just say, I am so fascinated at your relationship with your husband yeah. because the fact, <laughs> it's so a weird one. <laughs> it is. So do you, do you, I mean, I, I mean, I, mean, I, I read like all I about it in Rob. the, I'm I, a fan of Rob. I know me too. <laughs> me too. So of course we read about it in the book, but can you just walk us through how old you were when you met your husband and sort of like how you started that emotional labor process? Yes. So I write about that in the book. We got together when we were 16. So mm. we're high school sage <laughs> wise old I sage. I love yes. it. <laughs> yeah. Really, really smart age. But you know what? It's our 10 year anniversary tomorrow. So, you yay, know, we're making yay. it work. Oh, yay. Congrats. Yeah. But uh, I write in the book, we grew up in a really small town in the desert and I think I I I'm pretty sure it made it into the book I'm not now not remembering <laughs> but we went to a wedding yo it made it in the book oh, yeah. the waffle iron the teenage yeah mm-hmm. the teenage wedding mm-hmm. we attended and mm-hmm. uh I this is like the first moment that I remember doing all this work I'm like oh we're going to a wedding as a couple. I need to go and yeah. buy a gift from their registry, get a card, sign both of our names on that card, mm-hmm. make sure that we, you know, plan our arrangements. What are we going to wear? Like all of these, you know, mental steps to make sure that we are accommodating, you know, mostly yeah. accommodating the bride. And it was just such like a weird moment to look back on. Uh, you know, all of these years later. I and, love that you remember it so much because you you write in your book how romantic it felt and you got to sign oh, your yeah. names on the card. <laughs> and when you said, do you want to sign your name? He was like, no. He was like bristling <laughs> at the fact that you were like officially a couple with a waffle iron gift. <laughs> a so waffle funny. iron gift is a big deal when you're like only 17. Yeah. It's okay. still kind of a big deal. Like if Lisa showed up with a waffle iron here today, I'd be like, girl, yes. You got <laughs> First me. All, waffles. Um, I, I just had this thought I want to know what your your take is. Uh, it seems to me, if I think back to like when I read Little House on the Prairie, right, the division of labor seemed pretty obvious in the home. Mm. Um, and there wasn't all the additional things like summer camp, right, and orthodo- orthodontist appointments and, um, you know, uh, making sure that you get your child into preschool, mm-hmm. those kind of things. So I wonder mm-hmm. if there's some kind of this is my sociologist to me. I wonder uh-huh. if there's some kind of like, <laughs> you know, lingering where we start those emotional um, labor kind of things early in our early relationships mm-hmm. because for so long, I mean, that was kind of the job. The only job we were allowed was in the home and then it was teacher, nurse, yeah. or, you know, maybe flight attendant. So our life today is so much more complicated than it was 100 years ago, 200 years yeah. ago. What... Talk to me. So 
I do think that it, I mean, it obviously comes from the role women have been doing forever. Mm -hmm. I think this is why it's very intergenerational. Like my grandma read this book and she's like, oh yeah, I get that. (laughs) And then, (laughs) but, um, you know, to your point, there is so many expectations today that did not exist. Like, you know, you're talking Little House on the Prairie. It's like, uh, you know, go play with your sister all day long. I'll do all the housework and stuff. And then we'll bring you inside if there's like wolves or something. Yeah. <laughs> like, it, you right. know, um, and now there, there are a lot more expectations, I think. And I also write a little bit in the book about this idea that women want to have it all yeah. and have it all means that we're doing all of the emotional labor while also trying to succeed in the workplace. And then on top of that, there is emotional labor required of us while we're trying to climb the ladder and, you know, make ourselves do everything that we want to professionally as well. Yeah. And it's, it's pretty impossible. It, it, it is it's impossible. completely impossible. If you can maintain that balance for a certain amount of time, it's certainly not maintainable long term because there's yeah. not enough bandwidth. And you do such a great job outlining so many of the factors that are putting pressure on that. And it's it's not fair that we were like, okay, great. Yes, now we're fully in the workforce and we're fighting our ways and we're getting into more C-suites. Not enough, but more. And we have this entire workload that yeah. nobody can see and people often can't even acknowledge because they, they're not even aware it exists. But I, I just think it's so fascinating that you have been with your husband since such a young age because you saw that transition from, you know, his parents doing the emotional labor, his mother doing the emotional labor, then you experiencing the emotional labor, how that evolved when you started having kids, especially with your first son when he was born. Mm-hmm. I love um, the chapter where you talk about, you know, you you left your retail job the night you went into labor. Oh my which God, is you're a machine. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it, it's just, it's such a fascinating case study because not only have you known each other for that whole arc through those whole big life changes, but then your roles reversed when he lost his job and you became the breadwinner. And then as you needed to finish the book. And um, it's it's just so fascinating the way that you detail and chronicle it. And I, I would love it if you could um, share with our readers, there's a moment when you were writing the book and you realized that you didn't really have to food prep for like a whole week and you didn't really have to you know, clean the house and, and your husband had this moment of, of, you just noticed he was off one day. Can you walk us through that? Yeah. So those are kind of two separate moments. Like the moment that I realized that I hadn't, you know, done any of the meal prep or anything. That was a panic moment for me. I realized I had like been in my room writing for a really long time and I'm like, oh no, none of the shit's going to get done. Yeah. And I like went out and I'm like, no, the reason I'm in here is because all of the shit is getting done. And so Mm. it was, you know, this moment where I realized once I stepped away for a little while, he really like had the room to gain competence in emotional labor. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because I, I talk a lot in the book how I spent a lot of time micromanaging and really trying to like teach him emotional labor when it's really more of a process of kind of tuning into your life Mm -hmm. and you know, really taking a look at what needs to be done. It's not something that can necessarily be taught by having someone talk at you. Right. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, know, there are plenty of single dads, like you mentioned in the book, you know, who aren't, their children don't starve. You know, they make make it to school. (laughs) So at some point we all figure it out, you know, and we have, like you say, it's kind of like, we're running a race, but we had a head start. We've had like years of a head start and they will catch up and they'll catch up in their own way. And, you know, their standards, not necessarily ours. Yeah. But I also think that's like, you know, dad's parent in a different way than mom's parent. And Mm -hmm. one isn't better than the other. And actually children benefit from both. So I think, you know, kids can learn that um, sometimes, you know, it's it's okay to have a lunch that isn't perfect. Well, yeah. Well, and it's and it's also for kids, sure. But also something that I I think I even said, oh shit, out loud um, when I when I read this was, we don't we as women tend to go. Well, it's not done if it's not done perfectly into my standards, then it's not done, and we keep asking our partners 
to compromise and really come all the way to where we are as opposed to us considering changing our standards. And I think that is something that when I've had a lot of conversations since I read your article in my own relationship with my friends, um, it really lit a fire in my my social circle. Um, but there was never a, maybe I just need to relax and let him do it his way. Like we didn't even consider that. It was like, mm. well, you know, Zach used to clean our bathroom, but he wouldn't clean off the mirrors. And it drove me nuts because I was like, wait a second. So you like wiped down the counters, you you like vacuumed the rugs, but you didn't clean the toilet and you didn't clean the mirrors. Like, how do you not? This bathroom's not clean. Yeah. And it would drive me nuts as opposed to me being like, hey, yeah, you know what? I've got a clean place to put my toothbrush and I'll get the mirrors later. Like it never occurred to me that that women also need to compromise to have this be a better balance. Yeah. And but one thing I really like advocate for in the book is having a conversation about that because a lot of the times I would just be mad that a job wasn't done or done to my standards, but I wouldn't say anything about it. Yeah. Right. I, like there were things that I brought up during the writing of the book where I was like, Hey, this has bothered me for the last 15 years. Can you <laughs> stop doing that? Like, like I just never, I never brought it up, but like stop leaving, you know, he, he had a habit of whenever we were, you know, making food or if you made himself lunch, he would leave all of his stuff out all over the kitchen. Yeah. It gets and put away. I would go and put it away. <laughs> yeah. Again, and it gets put like, away. <laughs> yeah. Because then it would get put away. And I'm just like, just put your stuff away. He, yeah. he never does it anymore. Now he puts his stuff away. So I, I think. Oh, go ahead. We, uh, we need to have like conversations about our shared standard because I don't think we have that conversation. Yeah. I think we expect that if women want things done a certain way, that it, it's our job to do it. Well, it's such a romantic myth, which um, we recently covered Revolution from Within by Gloria Steinem. And she talks about, you know, the myths that we perpetuate in rom romance culture. And they're really damaging. And one of those, I think, that is very unhelpful is, well, our partner should just know. They should just know what mm -hmm. we want. They should just know how we like it done. And if not, maybe that means there's something wrong with our connection or whatever. Because it's not, it is not sexy to go, here's the gift I want you to buy me. Here's the way I want you to clean. And here are the compliments I'd like to receive. You know, like it's not, it's not exciting or sexy, but sometimes that's exactly what we need to do to actually get the things that we want and need. I will say, though, you do make a great point of um, of mentioning that if the bathroom isn't clean, nobody blames the dude in the house. The, the societal standards are that we blame the woman for that. So I do understand women having this, like, it has to be to my standards, because when we have company over, they're not going to say, wow. Yeah. Rob is really Rob is really slacking That's on a great point. wiping down these mirrors. That's a great point. You know, it 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 doesn't the expectation doesn't fall down on him. It falls down on on women predominantly. So that's like a cultural shift we have to make. Yeah. Yeah. But that also, you know, and like you said this is a conversation starter. It's certainly not like a a, a roadmap for how to fix it, but you know, that then gets in a little bit to a either refraining judgment from anything when I go into somebody's dirty bathroom or be kind of wanting to know how does your marriage work? How does your relationship work? Who cleans the bathrooms? Which is right. kind of none of my business. <laughs> you know what I mean? So it's really interesting to think about like how this might actually play out, which I kind of want to move into uh, uh, if, you, if you're ready to yeah. move into. Oh, yeah. So to give our listeners an idea of the structure of the book. So you do so much incredible context work and set up and explaining what emotional labor is, what it looks like in the home, what it's like between couples, the the factors and history that goes into contributing all of that. It's so beautifully set up. And then you zoom out into a larger cultural context. And this, for me, just blew my mind. So can you just take a couple of minutes and talk with us about how um, emotional labor actually contributes to rape culture? Yeah, I think this is one of the really big things that I I was excited to connect in the book because I think a lot of people, when they hear this conversation, you know, it really starts out like in the home and like, I'm mad at my partner because they're not cleaning the bathrooms. Right. right. 
Um, but it really is about this expectation that women are the ones that are supposed to keep everyone comfortable. Yeah. They're keeping the peace. They're keeping things running smoothly. And that has really big implications out in the world. And, you know, I, I talk from personal experience and, you know, with experts in the field about what that means for rape culture. So you're so. you're right in this idea that women, uh, uh, this kind of expectation that I will make everybody feel comfortable, it comes up in these interactions with catcalling. How do yeah. I react? How do I interact with that? When a when my manager or my boss makes a comment to me, you know, the expectation yeah. is that even if you're I don't want to re- reciprocate, I will not make them feel like the piece of shit that they are for doing it. Yeah, because your safety often depends is on it. equated to how skilled you are at navigating those moments with emotional labor. Yeah. And I think especially in the workplace, this is where we get into a lot of that gray area because, you know, women are expected to keep the peace, keep everyone comfortable. So it's like, okay, well, we're going to let the joke slide. We're going to smile through that. We're not going to cause a scene. And then that emboldens someone who sees, okay, well, if that behavior is okay, maybe I can push that line a little farther Mm -hmm. and a little farther. And so we are constantly doing that mental work of thinking, you know, what's going to keep me safe? What's going to keep this situation de-escalated? And it's, you know, a no-win situation for women because there is no amount of emotional labor that is going to stop what comes next when a man decides that they are going to cross that line completely because they've seen over and over again that there are no repercussions for that behavior. Right. And you yeah. you also talk about the example with Brock Turner about how this plays out in this larger cultural context because we do not value emotional labor yes. or or you know what that takes or the safety that that involves and so we on a larger level value the comfort of the rapist mm-hmm. over the discomfort and the trauma of the victim and mm-hmm. that's that's when you start getting asked questions like Oh well, well. Why were you smiling and flirting? Why were you wearing what that you dress wearing? that night? Why How much were did you, you have to drink? Right, because it, it's did you text him? Right, exactly. Because they're not seeing, you know, how we have to employ that emotional labor to stay safe. So, is the emotional labor, especially as it relates to rape culture, but just in general, kind of an affect? Do you think of the male gaze, or just kind of like? I, I, I mean, I don't know because I like, think about like the tribe that you mentioned, where it's egalitarian. It doesn't seem like they have much of a male case, <laughs> you know, like that, like women are here to serve me, right? Like I make a yeah. cat call on the, on the street because she's here for me and I want to talk to her. Yeah. Well, I think we have a big cultural reinforcement of women are here for the taking yeah. in our culture because, you know, media really reinforces yeah. that yeah. and says that, you know, this is this is women's role. This is what they do. They are supposed to make you feel comfortable. They're supposed to make you feel wanted. Um, And, you know, going back to that example of like, you know, what were you wearing? Why did you smile at him? Like one of the big things that is often asked is why didn't you fight back? Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. it's because, you know, we're taught that if we can just deescalate it enough, if we can use our emotional labor well enough, then we'll be safe. And that's not true. No. Yeah, that's not true at all. Um, So fascinating. It, it no that that was really one of the things that really just um made my draw my jaw completely drop and that chapter alone is worth reading the book to understand that this is not just like listen I want somebody to vacuum the floors more so I can you know for relax. those of you at home Misty has her sassy hip on, hand on her <laughs> sassy hip and there's a lot of head movement as she says that um, let's move into kind of. What we 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 set up at the top that you said this is a conversation starter, which is fantastic, mm-hmm. um, and this isn't a roadmap for how to change the world. <laughs> That's not on your shoulders. Um, but I did kind of kind of what was left for me with a lot of these um, chapters at the end is I kept thinking like, but how? But how? How do we do this? And you do make kind of a couple comments. First, we have to start uh, valuing emotional labor within um, and valuing it in the world. And valuing it in the world. Mm-hmm. I guess I I want to. Um, I have a quote I want to read, but I also just want to talk to you on the larger scale. What do you envision? Is this legislated? Is this a grassroots movement? Like, how do you see this cultural change taking place? If 
this book, let's say, becomes standard issue textbook for every sixth grader in the world. You know, like, how do you imagine moving forward such that we can start to shift some of this cultural perspective? Yeah, so that is really the big thing. I don't think anything changes unless we have a really big cultural shift. And the good thing is, I think we're in a space where we're starting to have a cultural shift. And so I think it was the perfect moment to write a book like this, mm-hmm. where we're talking about women's stories and women's lived experience. And we're saying, you know, this is this can't be ignored anymore. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so I think, you know, I really start with this book. I, I do zoom out and look at everything, but I really start on that personal level. Mm -hmm. And I think we need to start having these conversations with our partners because, you know, most of us have grown up having this be our autopilot. Like this is what we do. Mm -hmm. This is totally normal. And, you know, it's totally natural. That's one of the things that we think women are just naturally better at this stuff and nothing supports that. Like there is no scientific evidence that women are more natural nurturers or that we're hardwired for emotional labor or anything like that. Yeah. Right. We're really conditioned, you know, we're conditioned socially, culturally to take on this type of work. And so we get really good at it. But, you know, seeing how much my husband has grown over the past couple of years while we've been having these conversations tells me that, yeah, anyone can do this. You know, I, I think he's exceptional, but like, you know, by and sure, by and large, he's not like this super exceptional human being that is doing something that no other man could do. <laughs> right, do right, right. And that that's my experience. Um, you know, in my relationship as well, it it took a lot of hard conversations and a lot of rehashing conversations and a lot of you're doing a great job, but you kind of miss this and whatever. But but then it did get to a place where. It, you know, I'm like, oh, great. Like, and I've talked about this before. Zach knows how to do every single piece of my laundry. And I don't cringe thinking, you know, walking in. If I say I need something clean, it's clean. Or better yet, it's done without me having to ask. So progress can and does get made, yeah. which is so exciting. And I'm curious, how how are you and Rob doing now with the emotional labor balance? Like, how is today? How's this week? <laughs> oh, so we're in a weird place right now because it's summer break. Mm-hmm. And so I'm at home with kids like all day long. Ah. <laughs> so I'm kind of fried by the time he gets home. Yeah. And I was just like, <laughs> he looked at the floors and he's like, I need to mop the floors today. And I'm like, yeah, and the bathrooms are really dirty. <laughs> That's all he said. <laughs> and everyone's alive and you're welcome. <laughs> yeah. But he noticed, but he noticed. Yeah. No, and he noticed, and he wasn't, like, noticing, like, oh, these floors are dirty. He was like, oh, I need to clean these floors because he's the one that does our, you know, floor mopping right. and stuff. Now. Right, and something that I think you do such a great job of in the book, because I think if people are, if they they read your Harper's Bazaar article and then they're tuning into this podcast episode, there m- might be this idea that it's just us women sitting here critiquing men, right? But you do such an incredible job of highlighting not only how um, being skilled at emotional labor is a leadership superpower, mm-hmm. right? And really translates to all these high-level jobs in business, in all these aspects of of what makes our world really run. But you also um, highlight that that men leaning into emotional labor gives them a whole other layer of their life that they might have been missing out on Mm -hmm. and a fuller life. And so I'm going to circle back to that question I asked you earlier was um, when Rob one morning seemed kind of off and he had been taking on all the emotional labor. Can you walk us through that sort of role reversal? Um, Yeah. Yeah. So that was a weird morning where he just seemed kind of off. And I was like, what, like, what's going on? Because I had been, you know, just completely in my work. And he couldn't really put his finger on it. He's like, I feel like I'm forgetting something. And like, he couldn't really put his finger on it. And it was just (laughs) that he was the one, like I, I had completely dropped the ball and he was the one that was keeping track of everything that needed to be done, everything that the kids needed. And he had that sort of existential dread that he was forgetting something that I knew very well. And he's, you know, he had trouble going through this transition because he, you know, he not only like had that moment there. I don't know if that's the moment you're talking about, but there was another moment later on where he just like was off because he didn't, 
he didn't know how to be in this role and to value this role. Yeah. He always said yeah. like, yes, I value the work you do and all of that, you know, and give gave lip service to it. But when he was the one doing it and he wasn't bringing home any money, Right. And it was his job to be the stay-at-home dad. Mm-hmm. He really struggled with that because yeah. culturally, we tell men that their only value is, is their in work. their job. Yeah, and that's and not so, fair. No, it's not. And I, you know, I've talked about this before. I think my husband is more naturally nurturing than I am. I think he is, you know, just better and more patient with our children and just has that knack for it in a way that I don't. I think, you know, I've. I've learned how to be along the way. Sure. I'm not saying I'm a bad mother, but like, I think that it's really like one of his innate skills. And I think about, you know, what life would have been like for us had, you know, it been like 50 years ago when he just goes to work, comes home, drinks a beer, doesn't interact with his kids, doesn't really interact with me, doesn't get to talk about his feelings at all. Like, what a huge missed opportunity for so many men who yeah. are just like running on autopilot. Right. And I, I love that you were able to find a few real world examples of the Aka tribe that you talk about. And then what, what's been happening in Iceland where basically the entire government resigned after 2008 <laughs> and so many women took over in leadership roles. But in that, in that tribe, you describe this like, beautiful egalitarian system where the men are are within arm's reach of their babies you know 47 hours out of a hundred and and they're so nurturing and the men get together and have these beauty you know they they take care of their babies and they have this camaraderie and bond and how how men in modern society kind of miss out on these deep social bonds with their children, with their friends, with their other relationships, because they're not as skilled in emotional labor. So I just want to commend you on doing such a great job of critiquing culture, but it, but also supporting men and saying they deserve this. We need to make space for this. This is a whole other layer they might be missing and how it can benefit their life. Misty, it's like you set me up for the quote yes, that I girl, wanted to read segue perfectly. Queen. So I'm gonna um it's on page 176. It's in the chapter called Finishing the Fight. Yes. And um you talk about it, it's kind of coming on this this um heels of talking about Rob in this role. Um And you say, we'll never make any real progress until men willingly take on the role of allies and begin talking to one another about how to make emotional labor labor work in their relationships. Because if there is one thing that comes from the cultural demand for women to shoulder the bulk of emotional labor, it is this. It maintains the status quo. It keeps men comfortable and maintains both their position of power and their passivity. They can make small changes here and there, do a bit more laundry, take on dinner duty, or wash the dishes, but all of the emotional effort still lands on us. We have to do the patient explaining, use the soft tone of voice and the cushioned responses. We have to make sure we don't come across as ungrateful for the efforts they have put forth. We have to make sure that our partners do not feel attacked or blamed. While women have made great strides in the past century, the work remains incomplete in large part because of the demand for our emotional labor. It is why so many women, even today, hesitate to label themselves feminists. They are worried about the connotation more than the actual meaning of the word. I loved that because I was like, oh, this is how you're kind of deftly not putting the responsibility of us teaching them emotional labor on us. <laughs> right. <laughs> that it's it's their responsibility too. Yeah, and we're having that conversation a lot around race, around mm-hmm. like don't ask your black friend to educate you on what a microaggression is, right? Mm-hmm. Use the internet, look it up if you really want to be a good ally, educate yourself on it, which is a really nice shift. And you made this lovely I, I don't know if you had something you wanted to say about that paragraph that I read because I just it's me fangirling over you, but also you asked this question, you say to men do you ask yourself this question, men? Do you do a lot compared to other men, or do you do a lot compared to your partner? And I was like, damn. That is exactly <laughs> right. Um, and I have a listener question. I sent my friend this book, and she read it. And then she called me today, and she said, I've been spending the last five minutes trying to put words around my question, but I can't. She's like, how do you— 
what like she got very flooded with emotional labor so i said let's focus on yes exactly she said how do how do you survive after explaining emotional labor to your partner which requires more emotional labor for them to actually get it she's like i had such trouble putting words around this feeling it was rage it was frustration it's validation it's not just me experiencing this which then led to additional rage and anger (laughs) she's like i had to put the book down around him because she was like you know this huge book of fed up period and she would look at him across the room and be like (laughs) no you know and then um she said uh it made her mad it made her validated made her mad again because like what now what should she do so i know that we talked about how this is just a conversation starter but if you had a couple of suggestions, we talked, we mentioned them here, have these conversations, start to value the work yourself. But, you know, you do, you do make a great point of, uh, of how women of color, people of color are often hired to do emotional labor when we outsource it. And it's typically paid terribly. So, yeah, like we as a society are going, oh, yeah, so it's going to be $8 an hour for yeah. looking after our kids or cleaning our house yeah. or whatever. So. Yeah. Do you have any ideas um, since publishing the book uh, about how to better value that? Like how how can we at the grassroots level sort of do our part? Or is it legislative? Does it need to be mandated? So I think really when we're talking about that, when we're talking about the economic value of emotional labor, it does need to be legislative. I think there needs to be a lot more that happens around how we value, you know, paternity leave, Mm -hmm. maternity leave. I think that's a really huge part of it in, you know, starting to value the work that parents do. I think there needs to be more flexible work and not just for, I I know a lot of women that do flexible work. There are far fewer men that do it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think we really need that. And for a push for men to say, no, this is my work too. Mm -hmm. And to, you know, take that on. So I think we need a little bit of legislative help in that realm. Yeah. I think we need a lot of legislative help. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) A lot of legislative help because we are, I mean, we are falling behind, especially here in the U S compared to the rest of the world. Yeah. We are falling behind in such a big way when it comes to valuing the work of women. Yeah, absolutely. And, and the value of men as caretakers as well. Yeah. Any any caregiver work. Yeah. Yeah. So, Gemma, I am not in a relationship. I do not have kids. I mean, hopefully, ideally, someday I will be in an egalitarian relationship. But, you know, it's going to take an egalitarian person and a feminist to do it. (laughs) Um, But I don't think I'll have kids. So how can this book apply to me? What can I take away from this book? I mean, obviously, I've taken away a million things. But do you know what I'm saying? (laughs) Yeah, I don't think it is unique to parents. I think that just really amplifies it for a Mm -hmm. lot of women Mm -hmm. because then in addition to taking care of you know you and your partner and your social circle and your in-laws you're also taking care of like all of these small humans Mm -hmm. but there's a lot of emotional labor to be done just in a regular relationship and you know there is that kin work that you do with in-laws there is the maintaining of social bonds women do it not only you know for themselves and for their shared like you know, the couple's friends, but a lot of women will do it for their partners. Yeah. Like they will maintain their social bonds because they won't do it themselves because they don't know how to do that work. And society tells them not to do that work. So I think there is a lot to be learned about, you know, making sure that your partner has these skills and making sure you continue to have those conversations about how to have a truly equal relationship. It's not just you know, dividing up who does the dishes. It's dividing up how, you know, not even dividing up, but both of you showing up really fully for your shared life. Mm-hmm. Well, and do you feel like it applies to single people as well? Like, is it just in a, you know, a partnership or or a, a you know, a romantic yeah. situation? H- or I, I mean, and I guess we're also pitching you for your next book, which is Emotional Labor at Work or Emotional Labor for the Single Person. <laughs> for the single So set. many people tell me to write that book and I say, you know, someone else needs to write that book because I don't think that that is 
you know, my area of expertise sure. necessarily. Sure. I'd be happy to weigh in on that next book for whoever <laughs> wants to write it. But right, I right. get that question a lot. And I say, you know, if you're interested in it, write it. <laughs> write it. Okay, <laughs> great. We're on, it. We're, on We're it. on it. But I, I do you're see how, it. how it can be helpful. Like I could go to my sister and say like, hey, so I've handled all of the Christmas gifts for the last three yeah. years for or Mother's Day or whatever. Like I need you to step it up. Like I do see how it could be really useful. Yeah, I'm seeing how like I play that pattern with my sibling too, with my brother. Like I'll call him and be like, do you want to share in this gift for mom's day? Do you want to do this? Right. And so now I just buy my own and he's left out in the dust. Um, I, I will say- love it so much. You did give me, um, I, I, I'm from the Midwest and I'm of, uh, you know, I'm old enough to drive uh, a little bit older than that. So <laughs> Thank you. when you were talking about when you went to- um, visit your friend who had just had a baby and you didn't bring the kids, you brought a casserole because you were like the last thing this woman with an infant needs is three kids running around the house. And she was so surprised that your kids weren't with you. And you said, oh, they're at home with Rob. And she said, well, thank him for me. And you said, he doesn't need to be thanked. Yeah. And she was like, well, (laughs) tell him thank you anyway. I thought, you know what? It really struck me because I said, that's something I can start doing right now. So this is something I want to pitch is that something I can start doing right now is taking that kind of vocabulary out of my everyday language um, that I've just kind of picked up. I don't believe that it's cool when a man parents his children and it's not like a neat thing that he does for his wife, but I can take those niceties, that small talk bullshit out of my language that reinforces that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so towards the end of the book, you do a really nice job of um, explaining how how we can start to move forward. You talk about um, setting boundaries with the emotional labor we perform, which is something I'd never considered. I'd never thought about, okay, what emotional labor do I really enjoy doing? You know, I really love making someone refreshed that sounds weird coming out what i mean is like making <laughs> making the pot of coffee in the morning and and stocking the fridge with you groceries you're constantly asking me if you want me to you're like can i send you a pizza can i do what can i do for you I know, you do I'm like a good to refresh friend. Thank, i do i like to make sure everyone you're an, em, you're an emotional labor fluffer thank you <laughs> <laughs> um so and and then setting boundaries with the emotional labor we do perform and and really identifying what we like to do versus what we do that's based around perfectionism. Like yeah. I do not love cleaning the toothpaste splatter off of the bathroom mirror. That is based on perfectionism. That is based on someone will come in, see the toothpaste splatter and realize I'm a garbage human being and I'm not worth being friends with. Oh, right? so I'm like, laughing. Thank God she <laughs> brushes her teeth. Um, but things I do like doing is like booking a trip or like surprising, you know, someone with like a nice event in the evening or something like that. So, so, um, but what, can you expand just a little bit on how to set boundaries mm-hmm. with the emotional labor we perform? Yeah. So that's a really hard one and it's still really difficult for me. Um, some of the boundaries that I ended up setting up and I didn't just like cold Turkey and like not tell my husband, but I'm like, I'm no longer going to be the person that is going to buy cards for your family. And if they don't get a card, that's on you. Oh my God, that's so (laughs) scary because you know your mother-in-law can be like, hi, we noticed that- uh, Are we no longer speaking? Didn't get anything? Did I offend (laughs) you? Did I offend you? What did I do? (laughs) Sorry. Yeah, so that that is the thing. Like the boundaries are really hard to draw because, you know, the the blowback is going to be on us. Mm -hmm. But I think ultimately- that is what we need to start doing in order to not get burnt out because that's really the problem that is happening, you know, with most of us on a personal level is that we're feeling really exhausted and depleted. We don't have mental space. We don't have emotional energy. And that's just such a drag. And until we have that huge cultural shift that we so desperately need, we need to protect ourselves and protect, you know, our time and our space and Mm -hmm. our energy. And so it really is a matter of, you know, evaluating what really matters to me. What am I willing to let go of? Because I, you know, I do talk a lot about having shared standards and everything, but there is so much that we're conditioned to want just for the sake of perfectionism, because we're told that women are supposed to keep a perfect home. We're supposed to do all of these things in this specific way. Otherwise, we're we don't really have it all if we're not, you know, doing it all yeah, in this very specific way. And so I think it's really, you know, getting 
to the heart of what you want and what you value. And you also need to be having that conversation with your partner if you have one to say, you know, these are the things I really value and we need to make sure that I am not the only one doing this work. And vice versa. What do they really value and how do we both get it done? And and we were going to wrap up because we could talk about this forever. forever. This is a beautifully written book. Everybody who's listening buy this book. The audiobook is also fantastic. I love your narrator. Um, I, I read the book and I listened to the audiobook. So Misty is not what <laughs> you would say. call a, a slacker. Uh, listen, all. there's no perfectionism at play here. So, um, so you say, uh, and this is in Finishing the Fight on page 182, you say, we should be able to expect more from our allies. We need to be free from handholding every once in a while so we can use both hands to work toward progress ourselves, which I loved so very much. And I think that sort of encompasses the whole thing, right? If we're going to be able to make any sort of real progress in career, in life, et cetera, we have to be able to not be holding such a heavy load. Um, Gemma, is there anything that that you would love to um, to add or touch on because you cover it so comprehensively in this book. We've barely scratched the surface in this episode, but is there anything that you want to add before, before we wrap up? Well, adding to that, adding to what you were just talking about, I think one of the things I hear a lot is women have trouble having this conversation with their partners and they want to go about it in just the right way. Mm-hmm. And I think what I would say is just start that conversation and hire your expectations for your partner as an ally. Mm. Because Mm. I think that is something that has really been missing is that we expect men to be lazy when they approach this topic or Mm -hmm. to be defensive or Mm -hmm. to not do the work. And I think that's really something that needs to change is our expectation of them wanting to understand our lives. Mm. Right. Mm That's if it's great. our partner, they should. So, right. and that can keep us from coming at it from a defensive yeah, way. That's so smart. Good well, we're going to move towards our wrap up, and um, we ask a couple questions of each other whenever mm-hmm. we present the book. Yes, but we we're going to ask them of you because we have a lot of <laughs> author on our episode. <laughs> All right, um, Gemma, who do you think this book is perfect for? Everyone. <laughs> I mean, <Abby. laughs> um, agreed. Agreed. Full <laughs> agree. Who do you think this book? might not be perfect for we always say who's this book terrible for and i would say somebody like somebody who's not a feminist right Mm -hmm. like somebody who just refuses to uh to hear it yeah you know i i would say you know this book is not really for my grandpa you know (laughs) yeah i will say when i bought it he had he had my my grandma reads books aloud and she read it aloud to him and he he had he made his way through the whole thing. I so. love it. Good <laughs> for Gramps. So I, I told you I sent this to my friend. She was telling her mother-in-law about it. And she was like, Ugh, I'm reading this book on emotional labor. And her mother-in-law was like, don't do that. It'll just make you mad. <laughs> 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 so she's like, oh, so I sent her. Don't, it, this book is not good for people who are about to go on a vacation with their partner. <laughs> <laughs> I would say that. Very true. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> don't read it. You know, this is not for someone who is just about to start their Christmas shop. Yeah, thank you. Oh, no, no, don't read it right before a big event or the holidays or something. Um, And just for those of you, we do wrap up the prices. The hard copy is $21.99. The paperback is $15.71. The Kindle is $12.99. And the Audible is $27.37, narrated by Therese Plummer. Oh, she's so good. She has this sort of emotional labor. I love it. (laughs) I'm dying to narrate an audiobook. I got to pick her, so I was really excited that I got my choice of... Oh my God. So people like audition and you're like, this is the one. Well, they gave me three choices and she was just so good. Were were all of them women? Please tell me they were all women. Yes, of course. Okay, there wasn't like a dude who's like, listen, emotional labor. <laughs> yeah, he'd be like, I guess. I mean, pfft. he would inj- inject a lot of these. So, whatever. so upsetting. Um, the book is 272 pages. And we rate our books on a scale of practical Patty to woo-woo Wanda. Would you say that this falls more on practical Patty or woo-woo Wanda? <laughs> I don't think I get that woo in the book. Yeah. You don't? Like, not even a little bit. <laughs> Which is my favorite we kind love, of book. We is love a practical, practical patty. patty. <laughs> and then right. um, well. we love to assign each other homework. Do you have an idea of a homework assignment for us to try from this book? Yes. <gasps> <gasps> Where's the biggest nerds? We love homework. I keep being silent and silently reacting. I'm so excited. <laughs> okay. So really, I, I mean, 
if you have a partner, this is the homework. Okay. Start the conversation. Um, and I always say that the easiest thing, you know, it's easy for them to Google or like find an article or something, but listen to a podcast together. So it can be this podcast or, um, you know, ones that I think are really accessible to men. I've done a couple podcasts that have included, um, men on them. Mm -hmm. So Dear Sugars and Zen Parenting are two that have, you know, a male host and a female host. Great. So they're really nice and balanced, a good, easy one to start the conversation. But I think this is really good homework because it ups that expectation that you are not going to digest all of the information for them. And so they, you know, they kind of get it read out to them. It's not a whole lot of work. But it does require that they show up. And I think that's, that's great. really when you're starting this. I that's love so that. smart. That is super smart. Yeah. And I, I had to, I remember when there weren't podcasts about it yet because your article had just come out. Um, I asked Zach to read it for a few weeks, you know, before he actually read it. And then we got into a fight about it. And then, and then we were able to have the conversation. <laughs> Yeah, I don't usually recommend uh, the Harper's Bazaar article because I definitely wrote that. I wrote that thinking that, first of all, had no idea it would go viral. First of all, I bet you wrote that in the span of like four minutes. (laughs) (laughs) It was ridiculous. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I wrote that with a very specific female audience in mind. Yes. Yeah. And, you know, it's also like, we're fed up and has a big, like, yellow rubber glove giving the finger. I know. So I it's love not very it. welcoming so to men. I'm going to frame it. Yeah. I know. <laughs> no, you're right. Because you you were thinking, oh, I'm talking to women who get it, right? So I yeah. don't have to do the emotional labor of, like, sugarcoating the way I'm disseminating this information. Yes, exactly. So but I think I've done a lot of work since then. I think you know, asking men to dive into the whole book fed up might be a little much. Mm. I think a podcast is that really nice, sweet spot where you guys can like listen to it together. You can cook a meal while you're doing it and it makes it so much easier to approach. And I do just want to reiterate before we go, yes, there is a lot of critique. Yes, there is a lot of dismantling of these ideas of gender roles that we have and these expectations but you do a wonderful job, especially towards the end of the book, supporting men and saying like, yeah. this is valuable. This yeah. is not, this is not like, oh man, men are so bad at this and I wish they could get better. Like it's, it's obvious. <laughs> Thank you. Jemima, I don't know if you knew that. <laughs> Thank you for not. The voice was a valley girl. A valley girl. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> like, a valley girl that's really mad at like, men. Yeah, no, you're better. <laughs> no, I just really thought it was, it was handled in, in a respectful and honest and upfront way. Yeah. I just yeah. valued so much and wanted to thank you for kind of shining a light on every nook and cranny on, of at work, at home, you know, with rape culture, with children, with significant others, with bosses, yeah. the intersectionality of it. Like you really kind of gave everybody who reads this a working language on what emotional labor is, where it shows up, which is everywhere. And that you say like it's mental, it's continuous, and it's yeah. invisible. And like that really kind of helps set the primer. Yeah. And uh do you feel pressure to write a follow-up or are you working on another book now? I am working. I have not had it picked up by a publisher yet. I haven't pitched it yet, um, but I have a full proposal and first chapter written of my next book. This I is will. so exciting. You already have two purchases right here. It does build off of Fed Up. So. Oh, great. Oh, my God. Uh, amazing. We cannot wait. Obviously already reading it. We're going to pitch you some titles. <laughs> if it's after fed up, it's like lie down. Thank you. <laughs> Get me a Xanax. <laughs> Bring mommy her wine. That's what's happening. Gemma, thank you so much for being here with us. Thank you for just fangirling over me for an hour. I feel so special now. You are special. (laughs) We're so grateful for your brain and your fingers and typing and writing and everything. And and it has changed my life and will forever change the way I approach any relationship moving forward. Um, And we're just so grateful. Grateful. And we end every episode by saying life is abundant and people can take it however they want to. Usually I say it in the way of like, oh my God, my I'm overwhelmed. She's like, wow, life is abundant. Right. Um, and you're welcome to join us in saying that if you would like. Mm, life is 
abundant. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Goodbye. Goodbye, everybody. Oh, that was awesome. Go Help Yourself, a comedy self-help podcast to make life suck less, was produced by Misty Stinnett, Lisa Linky, and Matt Sav. Our theme song was also written by Matt Sav. He's amazing. <laughs> do you want to get in touch? You do. Email us at gohelpyourselfpodcast at gmail.com. And you know you can also find us on the social medias. Instagram at gohelpyourselfpodcast. Twitter at G-H-Y podcast, or check out our website, gohelpyourselfpodcast.com. And if you liked our podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review us on iTunes to help other people discover our show. It's really the least you can do. And why don't you tell all of your friends? Bye! Bye.